again, everybody. Um, I wasn't exactly for sure how to start today off. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Um, because like this chapter that we're going to cover today, and I came close to it, and I was like, I ain't going to do it, um, could really be split up into three, three sermons, all right? Um, so I'm going to do three sermons worth lengths of today, okay? So you're going to be here for a couple hours. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, but this really could be split up into like three chapters, but we're, we're starting, uh, we're just going to do it in one. Um, but this really could, I really want you guys to feel the weight of this chapter. So there's not like a, hey, focus on this in this introduction. Because I want you to feel the weight because we're entering, and it, it surprises me that we're about halfway through the book of John and we're, we're beginning today a chapter that starts the first week, the last week of Jesus' life before he goes to the crucifixion. And the rest of the other half of John is about the last week. So it shows how important the last week of Christ's life really was. If anything, it shows that it was more important than anything else he did before. So today, I, I kind of just, so there's not a, a huge introduction other than I want you guys to feel the weight of this. So keep in mind, this is the beginning of the week before Christ goes to the cross. All right? Starting in John 12, verse 1, it says this. Six days before the Passover began, Jesus went back to Bethany, the town where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had prepared a supper for Jesus. Why? Because they were like, gratitude, you, rose, you raised him from the dead. All right? They had prepared a supper for, for Jesus. Martha, Martha served, and Lazarus and Mary were among among those at the table. Verse 3, Mary picked up an alabaster jar filled with nearly a liter of rare and costly perfume, the purest extract of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she wiped them dry with her long hair, and the fragrance of the costly oil filled the house. I love that last phrase, and I didn't put it in the notes here, but your worship should fill a place. Like you, your life should be such a, such, such a life of worship that when you walk in the room, people know something, the atmosphere has changed. There's a ripple here. And when you walk in the room, your worship, your adoration, your gratitude for what Christ did on the cross, for raising you from the dead, should permeate even the, the, the nastiest darkness that's around you. But I didn't put that in the notes today because there's something else I want you to see. Um, here's Jesus heading to, heading to the Passover feast and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are hosting Jesus, much to like, one, to show them gratitude for raising Lazarus from the dead, but two, it was customary as people traveled to Jerusalem, you had people come into your house. You may even have strangers. Like, there was an open-door policy during this time. You come in, you, if you need a place to sleep, even if I don't know you, we'll get to know each other by the end of the week. You know what I'm saying? But, but they, were, they were hosting Jesus specifically as a way of saying thank you, and we see that because of, of her anointing the anointed one's feet with oil. As a way of showing gratitude for what Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead. But Mary, Mary goes and gets this fragrant oil, right? She anoints the anointed one as an act of worship um, from a place of extreme gratitude. And this oil would, would, would have been costly. We'll find out here in a minute. It was a, a year's worth of wages. wages. If you were to put that in today's terms, this flask of oil, this liter of oil, would have cost $10,000, if you use today's standards in that time. Like this would have been extremely expensive oil. And I think the thing that it 
points to us is this, is that worship should cost us something because it costs Christ everything. You realize heaven was bankrupted for your redemption. Heaven was bankrupted for your, for, for your redemption. And I'm using redemption purposely because redemption means your life had a cost and it had to be paid for. And it was paid for by his life. He left his throne, lived a sinless life, laid his life down for the sheep. He, he, he bankrupt. he gave everything. And it, 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 since he gave everything, our worship for him should cost us everything. It should cost us everything, right? And here's, here's the deal. I, I love how Isaiah 53, I'm going to unplug this before it gets too smoky in here, all right? Because, uh, foggy in here, and then Brian's going to start coughing, and everybody else is going to start coughing, and it'll be one big, um, I don't know what happened, but is it good? Okay, good. But I love how Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah is a prophet, one of our friend who's a prophet, in the Old Testament he prophesied not only what, what his worship should look like, as in for he giving him the highest, highest honors, but what he gave up. Isaiah 53 says this, who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant, and a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him, and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. Wrong with who? Us, because he lived a sinless, blameless life. But in fact, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with, with us. We thought he, he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, but it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him, our sins. He, looked, he took the punishment that, uh, and for, that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered, and got, wandered off and gotten lost. We're all, we've, all, we've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything, everything we've done wrong on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought of his own welfare, being bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it is what God had in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he would give himself as an, as an offering for sin so that, he, that, that he'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan deeply, will deeply prosper through him. Out of the terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it is worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I will reward him extravagantly, give, give extravagantly the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch. That's why we give him the highest of worship. That's why it should cost us everything, because he took on death on our behalf. Because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took, he took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. That's you and me. 
That's why our worship should cost us something because it cost him everything. He paid the debt that we couldn't pay. Now, watch Judas's response to the anointing of Jesus' feet. John 12, 4, it says, But Judas, the locksmith, or Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, the betrayer, spoke. I love how John just kind of makes sure you know that this is the guy who turns his back on Jesus. It's like a little, like, I would do the same thing. You know the guy who turned his back? That's him. You know, that know-nothing piece of crud. All right. What a waste, Judas said. We could have sold that, this perfume for a fortune and given the money to the poor, but I love, I love this fact. In fact, Judas, Judas had no heart for the poor. He only said this because he was a thief and in charge of the money case. He would steal money whenever he wanted from the funds given to support Jesus' ministry. Verse 7, Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. I love that. When the enemies, that darkness is trying to attack you for, for doing the right thing, when he's trying to distract you from doing the right thing, Jesus right now is saying, leave them alone. She has saved it for the time of my burial. The Aramaic translates that, let her continue the, the burial ceremony. Okay? And here's the deal. Two things I want to show you from these verses. Number one is that Mary brought flowers before the funeral. Say it again. Mary brought flowers before the funeral. You're like, Derek, that makes no sense. Well, let me explain. Mary showed her appreciation for Jesus while he was still here. Right? But how often do we forget to worship when life is good? And even more, how often do we forget to worship when life is going bad? But here's what we have to understand that we see. Especially with her carrying on the burial ceremony before Christ even went to the cross is this, is that worship is not based on our circumstances, but on who he is and, and, and his rescuing of us. Our worship is not based on our circumstances, but on who he is and his rescuing of us. That's why you can see people with their hands lifted high in the air, screaming at the top of their lungs, worshiping God in the midst of the, some of the hardest parts of their life because it's not based on circumstances, it's based on him and what he has done for us. I love, I love what Hebrews 12 says. He says this, the earth was rocked at the sound of his voice from the mountain. But now he has promised, once and for all, I will not only shake the systems of this world. This is what he has done. Once and for all, I will not only shake the systems of this world, but also the unseen powers in the heavenly realm. Now the phrase, once and for all, clearly indicates the final removal of all things that are shaking. That is, the old order. So only what is unshakable will remain. He has, sh he has shaken the darkness in your life up, and it's there no more. That's why we worship no matter the circumstances. It goes on to say, since we are receiving our rights to an unshakable kingdom, an unshakable kingdom that lives inside of us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth or in me as in heaven, we should be extremely thankful and offer God the purest worship that delights his heart as we lay down our lives in absolute surrender, filled with awe, for our God is a holy, devouring fire. Because of what he, done, he has done, he deserves everything laid down at his feet, no matter the circumstances, no matter how bad life gets or how good life gets. gets. Worship is not based on our circumstances, but who he is 
and his rescuing of us. And I just want to make a side note here in regards to Mary bringing flowers to the, before the funeral. Us as believers, we have to stop speaking poison to each other. Because here's what I've noticed, because I've, I've preached a couple of funerals in my day, and I've known people's opinions of other people, and they would show up to the funeral, and they'd be, oh, I'm so sorry he's gone, when just two weeks ago you were spitting poison about this person. We have got to start speaking life. We have got to start show, like I, I, there's a, my, when my when my grandfather Clarence passed away, and this is, and I don't know why this, I've remembered this to my day. We had somebody who told my grandmother, hey, you're not going to see me for the next couple of weeks, but when everybody else is gone, when everybody else is gone, I'll be here. Right? Why don't we start speaking life to people instead of speaking poison? Well, they've done me wrong. Well, you've done a lot of people wrong too, and you're still seeking grace. So why don't we start bringing the fragrance, the flowers to people before their funeral? And saying, yeah, I know you've messed up and you screwed me over, but listen, I want to fill this room with an aroma of forgiveness and worship. We've got to stop. stop. Don't go to somebody's funeral that you just talk trash to. I don't know how your heart can handle it. You with me? That's just a side note. I don't even know why that came to my mind this week, but it felt like it probably needed to be said. But here's the second, second thing that I want you to grasp from that. Because I don't want you to misunderstand Jesus' statement about the poor. He is not making light of poverty here. Okay, He's not making light of poverty, but he is putting weight on personal worship and not service. On personal worship and not service. You know what I mean? Judas was masquerading as we could use that for a service project. And Jesus was more concerned about her worship, her personal worship, which tells us that our worship is the driving factor of our service to him. Our worship is the driving factor of our service to him, and here's why. Even non-believers can go serve, but only believers can worship truly. Now, we are going to worship some, Right? But we, only believers can worship truly. That's why he's important. He's putting a weight on worship. So let me say it like this. If worship is our response to who God is and what God has done, then service is the expression of that worship. Is the expression of that response. God is more concerned about your worship than he is about your service. Service is just a byproduct of worship. So if you're not worshiping correctly, you'll never serve correctly. You with me? We'll keep going because we'll be here forever if I keep going, okay? When the word got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd, I just want to know who these people are that go and test. Hey, Jesus is like five miles away. And that's all, I, like, I want to be that person. Like the master's close, you know what I'm saying? Like, but when the word got, got out that Jesus was not far from Jerusalem, a large crowd came out to see him. And they also wanted to see Lazarus because Lazarus' life was a witness. The man, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. This prompted the chief priests to, to seal their plans to do away with both Jesus and Lazarus. That's interesting, isn't it? Why would they want to do away with Jesus and Lazarus? Well, we'll look at it here in a minute. And by the way, just I, I was curious when I was reading this, what happened to Lazarus. And church history says he became one 
stream says he became a pre, uh, the priest of this area and died of natural causes. And then another church history, stream of church history says he was martyred. Um, so he was a priest and was martyred. Who knows? Either way, it's still, it's, he, he gone. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, because I was curious, like, I wonder what church history teaches about Lazarus after, you know, all this. I was like, eh. So I got two different streams. I was like, okay, well, that's neither here nor there. Anyways, for the uh, Lazarus, for his miracle testimony was irrefutable and was persuading many of the Jews living in Jerusalem to believe in Jesus. Right? It's an interesting fact that these priests not only wanted to kill Jesus now, but to kill one of his miracles. The only way that darkness can deal with truth, to deal with your life being changed, to deal with your witness, because Lazarus' life was a witness to Christ's power, is to kill it. Like he's trying to kill what Christ is doing in you and has died in you. That's why first, our friend Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 5, he said, he said, be well balanced and always alert because your enemy, the devil, roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. The enemy is trying to kill your witness. The enemy is trying to kill your witness. And that's why, like, this I don't know why it's affected me so much in the last couple months and years, just close pastor friends who have just failed morally, like close pastoral friends, people who I consider, consider my pastor. had left me disheartened for a little while. Like, is anybody going to make it to the end of the race? You know what I'm saying? And, not, and, and that's not even counting people that, you know, have influence that I watch and listen to. That's just people who are close to me. That's come out some things have happened. And, and my, my thing is, and that, that didn't only happen to pastors. It happens to you. The enemy is trying to kill your witness. You have to guard yourself. Stay alert. Don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. Because if you let your enemy have a seat at your table, he's going to win. But before we get into this next part, I want to do a little explaining this next part. So during the Passover celebration on the, on the Jewish calendar, it's on the, it, on the 10th day of Nisan, um, which is, would be like April 4th of this coming up year, Okay. If you're going by the Jewish calendar, it's called Nisan, uh, 10th day of Nisan. All right, just like the car, but minus one S. Um, but on the 10th day of Nisan, a lamb would be selected, um, not sacrificed, but this lamb would be, be, would be selected on the 10th day of Nisan um, and would eventually be sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan. But on the 10th day of Nisan, I want you to look at what Jesus does. Okay, so the day they're supposed to go to Jerusalem pick the sheep that they're going to slaughter four days later to cover up their sins. Let me show you what Jesus does. The next day, the news that Jesus was, was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the massive crowd gathered at the feast. Remember, they're all there. They're about to pick their sheep, the, the spotless lamb that, they're, that they're, they're going to sacrifice in four days. By the way, Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of Nisan, by the way. <laughs> saying. So they, took, so they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Everyone was shouting, Lord, be our Savior. If you're reading the King James, it says, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
So they took the palm branches and went out to meet him. Everyone was shouting, Lord, be our Savior, which is what Hosanna means, means save us now. Blessed is the one who came to us, sent from Jehovah God, the King of Israel. When Jesus found, found a young donkey and rode on it to fulfill what is prophesied, people of Zion, have no fear. Look, it's your, your, it's your king coming to, coming to you riding on a young donkey because if he rode on a horse, he'd be a conquering king. If he came riding a donkey, he'd be in peace. He's coming to bring peace on the 10th day of Nisan as a spotless lamb. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand the importance of what was taking place. But after he, w- he was raised and exalted into glory, they understood how Jesus fulfilled the prophecy and the scriptures that were written about him. Jesus enters Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan as the sacrificial lamb. The same day that everybody else is picking these little sheep, he walks in and says, I am your lamb. I am coming in to be your sacrifice. I'm the only one that can do it, but ultimately one that they would reject in just a couple of days. But it goes on. It says, all the witnesses of, of the miracle Jesus performed when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead kept spreading the news about Jesus to everyone. The news of this miracle of resurrection caused the crowds to swell as great numbers of people welcomed him into the city with joy. So right now they're like, Yes, be our lamb, be our savior, be our king. And here a couple of days, they'll scream, crucify him. The news of this miracle of resurrection caused the crowds to swell as great uh, numbers of people welcomed him into the city with joy. But the Pharisees were disturbed by this and said to each other, we won't be able to stop this. (laughs) You didn't. (laughs) The whole, wor- the whole world is going to run after him. The whole world is going to run after him. Christ is the unstoppable God. Because here we are, 2,000 whatever years later, he couldn't be stopped. No matter how hard darkness tries, even death could not hold him. See, Christ is sovereign over all, Right? Which means God can do all things and accomplish all things. Do all things and accomplish all things. Nothing is too difficult for him. And he orchestrates and determines everything that is going to happen in your life. And in my life, in America, and throughout the world. Whatever he wants to do in the universe, he does. For nothing is impossible with him including his death. No one takes my life, I lay it down. I am going to be your sacrificial lamb. That's why I'm entering the day that I'm entering to let you know that you may reject me, but ultimately I will redeem you. God is in control of all things and rules over all things. He has the power and authority over nature, earth, earthly kings, history, angels, and demons. Even Satan himself has to ask God permission before he can act. He is unstoppable. John twelve twenty goes on to say, Now, there were a number of foreigners from among the nations who were worshipers at the feast. Um, most They were Greek. They are probably Greek converts to Judaism. Okay? They went to Philip, who came from the village of Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, would you take us to see Jesus? 
we want to see him. So Philip went to, to find Andrew, and, and then they both went to inform Jesus. And here's Jesus' response. He replied to them, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's letting them know right up off the bat, I'm about to die. Let me make this clear. A single grain of wheat will never be more than a single grain of wheat unless it drops into the ground and dies. Because then it sprouts and produces a great harvest of wheat. All because the one grain died. Here in a minute we're going to read where Jesus is going to say that everything's about to change. Right? And and this is how. Because to see a harvest or to see a change, Christ has to lay down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. You've often heard me say it like this, for, for something to be resurrected, it has to die first, right? But he has to lay down his life. He has to be that sacrificial lamb. That's why John in John one twenty nine says the very, uh, the very next day John saw... Um, the very next day, John saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized, and John cried out, Look, there, there he is, God's Lamb. He will take away the sins of the world. How will he take away the sins of the world? Well, Colossians 2 and 13 says, The realm of death descri- describes our former state, for, he, for we were held in sin's grasp, but now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven for all of our, all our sins. He canceled out. Every legal violation we had, we had on our record. And, and the old arrest warrant that stood in, to indict us, he erased it all. Our sins, our stained souls, he deleted it all. And they, they cannot be retrieved. Every, everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto the cross, his death, and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. That's why he needed to go to the cross. Christ, in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Christ suffered and died for sins once and for all, the innocent for the guilty, to bring you near to God by his body being put to death and by being raised to life by the Spirit. He went to the spiritual realm and made a proclamation to to the spirits in prison because of their disobedience long ago. For during the time of Noah, God patiently waited while, while the ark was being prepared but only a few were brought safely through the floodwaters, a total of eight souls. This was the prophetic picture of the immersion that now saves you. Not a bathing of physical body, but rather the response of, of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven at the place of supreme authority next to God. The very powers of heaven, include, including every angel and authority, now yield submission to him. He had to go to the cross to be able to save you, to be able to redeem you. This is why we worship with gratitude. This is why we forsake everything and fall at his feet. Our worship, what, our worship is what fills the room because he has done so much for us. So we give everything to him. And everything that you do, do it for his glory. Do you want to know what it looks like to live a life of worship like this? I'm glad you asked because John tells us. Well, he records Jesus anyway. This is what he says. The person who loves his life and pampers himself will miss true life. 
but the one who detaches his life from, from this world and abandons himself to me, you will find true life and enjoy it forever. If you want to be my disciple, follow me and you will go where I am going. You will go where I'm going. Where is he going? He's headed toward the cross. <laughs> and he knows it. And he's calling, and he's even calling you to death. I'm not talking about drinking the Kool-Aid, okay? Or am I going to pass out cups and have you drink anything like that guy who, you know. But he is calling you to death. He's calling you to a life of full surrender. We say it like this, death to self. Now, which may mean one day you put your life is in danger because of your faith. He may be calling you to go into dang America. It's more like dying to self. Dying to self-promotion, dying to self-absorbed lives. But the question becomes, what if he is calling you to those dangerous places? Are you living a life of full surrender? Are you living a life where you'd say, yes, Lord. Walking in the way of your truth, we wait eagerly for you. Your name and your renown is the desire of my soul. So if you want me to go there, I'll go. If you want my kids to go there, they'll go. Like, do you pray for your children to walk so tightly with the Lord that if he led them to a dangerous place that you would be okay with them going? What would I say if Zane came to me and said, Dad, I think God's called me smack dab into the middle of wherever where Christians are being killed on the daily? Would I be okay with it? Would I celebrate that? I hope so. I hope so. Are you living a life full of surrender? He goes on to say, if you want to be my disciple, because that's you're headed to your own cross, right? One way or the other, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're picking up your cross. If you want to be my disciple, follow me, and you'll go where I'm going. And if you truly follow me as my disciple, the Father will shower his favor upon your life. And there's a reason why, you can go back for a second, there's a reason why I didn't add that second verse. Because I didn't want you guys putting faith in a promise before we understood what, it, what you had to do first. You with me? Because oftentimes we'll say, God, rain down your favor upon me, and we'll and we forget the part where it says you must go where I'm going, and I'm going to die. We want we want the a reward before we do the work to get it. You with me? I'm not talking about I'm not talking about salvation. You don't work for your salvation, so don't go quote me on that one. I'm, I'm talking about sometimes as a believer, we forget that God calls us to some things before we can get some things from him. He says, then the Father will shower you. And he goes on to say, even though I am torn within and my soul is in turmoil. Why? Because he knows the cross is just a couple days away. I will, not, I will not ask the Father to rescue me from the hour of trial. But Derek, what about in the garden? The, gar the prayer in the garden where he says, Father, let this cup pass from me um, is actually one of a prophecy being fulfilled that he, would pray, that he would do this but 
it, if you look at it in the actual actual Aramaic, what it looks like is it's one continuous thought. And sometimes we break it up, right? God, if you'll take this cup for me, we take this cup for me, whatever. But it's actually, if there was any other way, God, we know it was more of Jesus saying, there is no other way than for me to do this, right? Even though I am torn within, my soul is in, is in tur- turmoil, I will not ask the Father to rescue me from the hour of trial, for I have come to fulfill my purpose, to offer myself to God. Now, that's a weird response to them coming and saying, hey, can some Greek people come talk to you? With me? Listen, what's so weird. But ultimately, you have to understand that Jesus was born to die. You ever thought about it like that? What is my purpose? Well, Jesus knew his purpose was to die. Can you imagine living your life knowing my purpose is to die? But he goes on to say this. He goes, so Father, bring glory to your name. And suddenly a booming voice was heard from the sky. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it through you again. And the audible voice of God startled the crowd standing nearby. Some thought it was only thunder, yet others said, other, others said, the audible voice of God startled the crowd standing nearby. Some thought it was only thunder, but yet others said, an angel has spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice you heard was not for my benefit, but for yours, to help you believe. From this moment on, everything in this world is about to change. For the ruler of this dark world will be overthrown. He is overthrown in your life. And I will do, I will do this when I am lifted up off the ground and when I draw the hearts of people to gather them to me. Satan has been defeated. Darkness did not win nor will it end. Like you've read the book of Revelation, right? We know how this ends. You win. So why are you fretting? <laughs> why are you worried about what the government does? Why are you worried about this and that? Well, Derek, I've got to pay my bill somehow. Yeah, you're right, but who holds all authority in his hands? The king does. And at the end, we win. We win. Satan is defeated and he already knows he's defeated he's just trying to drag you with him he's trying to drag you in the fur the sacrifice has been made in Christ's blood he goes on to say he said he said this to, to indicate that he would die by being lifted up on the cross and people from the crowd spoke up and said die Remember, we talked to this whole this misconception on the Messiah, right? This whole time, people from the crowd spoke up and said, "Die! How could it? How could the anointed one die? The Word of God says that an anointed one will live with us forever. But you just said that the Son of Man must be lifted up from the earth. And who who is this Son of Man anyway?" And Jesus replied, "You will have the light shining with you for only a little while longer." While you still have me, walk in the light so that the darkness doesn't overtake you. For when you walk in the dark walk in the dark you have no idea where you're going so believe and cling to the light while i am with you so that you will become children of light and after saying this jesus then entered into the crowd and hid himself from them 
those were the last public words or mess or sermon from Jesus. Jesus is telling them, cling to him, cling to the light. Don't allow darkness back. Don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. I want you to write that down. Don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. Don't let the enemy have a seat at your table. He is prepared for you. Now, because of this false or wrong teaching and understanding of the prophets, the people were expecting a Messiah to come and overthrow the governmental system of that day. Not realizing that happens later when he does reign in an earthly kingdom forever. Heaven and earth. New heaven, new earth. Kingdom of God. They believed he'd be a conquering king. So listen to their response. Even with the overwhelming evidence of all the many signs and wonders that Jesus had performed in front of them, his critics still refused to believe. This fulfilled the prophecy given by Isaiah, Lord, who, who has believed our message? Who has been the unveiling? Who has seen the unveiling of your great power? And the people were not able to believe, for Isaiah also prophesied, God has, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts to the truth. So with their eyes and hearts closed, they cannot understand the truth, nor turn to me, turn to me so that I can instantly cleanse and heal them. Isaiah said these things because he had seen and experienced the splendor of Jesus and prophesied about him. Yet there were many Jewish leaders who, who believed in Jesus, but because they feared the Pharisees, they kept it a secret. So they wouldn't be ostracized by the assembly of the Jews, for they loved the glory that men gave them rather than the glory that came from God. And Jesus shouted out passionately, to believe in me is to also believe in God who sent me. For when you look at me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine, the, shine in this dark world, so that all who trust in me will no longer wander in darkness. If you hear my words and refuse to follow me, I do not judge you, for I have go back. I judge you, but you. Uh, I do not judge you, for I have not come to judge you, but to save you. If you reject me and refuse to follow my words, you, are, you, are, you already have a judge. The message of truth I have given you will rise up to judge you at the day of judgment. For I'm not speaking as someone who is self-appointed, but I speak by the authority of the Father himself who sent me and who, is, who instructed me, uh, me what to say. And I know that the Father's commands result in eternal life. And that's why I speak the very words I have heard him speak. Eternal life rests solely on your faith in Christ and who he, he, and who he represents and nothing else. And nothing else. But I want to read the first verse of the next chapter. Is that okay? Because I hope that you felt the weight a little bit in that, toward the end of that chapter, but I want you to feel the, the heart of Jesus. the next verse it says Jesus knew 
that the night before the Passover would be his last night on earth before leaving this world to return to his father's side. All throughout his time with his disciples, Jesus had demonstrated a deep and tender love for them. And now he longed to show them the full measure of his love. He was ready to die. He was ready to die. And he wants, he wanted them and he wants you to experience the full measure of his love. He's only going to be alive for about three more days. I mean, ultimately he lives forever, but you get what I'm saying. The whole world's going to be flipped upside down here in just a couple of days. We still have a couple of chapters before we get to that point. So if you can this week, read chapters 13. Read chapter 13 through chapter 14, verse 7. That's where we're going to be at this next week. We're going to go over the rest of 13 into seven verses in 14. All right? Thank God, we want to thank you so much that you are a God. Christ, we just thank you that you want us to experience the full measure of your love. That in the, even in the most probably traumatic, most turmoil point in your life, you still had a heart for people. That you came to fulfill a purpose and you were ready to fulfill it. So I pray as we walk out of here, we walk in your love, that we experience your love, that we become grateful for your love, that we do seek the light in those dark places of our lives. That when the enemy arises to try to snuff out our witness, that you give us a light to run to. That we flee, that we that we cling, that we that we just want all of you. If it's available, we want it.